the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Now then, boys, where are we going? To the top, right? Where's that? To the toppermost of the poppermost. Welcome back. We are now on side B of June of 1963. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kit O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. So last time we spoke of the British charts and we spoke of past, present, and future for the Beatles and the charts. We're going to continue on that theme as we move on to the American charts from Billboard magazine for June of 1963. Absolutely. And we're going to see some continuations of some themes that we have talked about in previous episodes. We're going to see a little bit of Boogaloo still hanging around. We're going to hear some folk pop, but we're also going to see signs of the future, including the debut of a major Motown artist who will work with Paul McCartney in the future, Stevie Wonder. So, all right, we start with the first week in June. Actually, the issue is dated June the 1st of 1963. At number four is Surfing USA by the Beach Boys, which we've spoken of. But, you know, the Beach Boys are getting pretty hot. They are, while not the equal of the Beatles on the other side of the pond, they are certainly making their bones here in mid to late 1963. Surf rock in general is uh, really on the rise in the U.S. Here's a perfect example of that. But yes, the Beach Boys in general are definitely making an impact. And of course, as we go on in this show, we will see that more and more. I will just say that if anyone's doing the same as us and studying all of this, and you've seen that the drummer's different, somebody called Frank DeVito, I've done the work for you all. He's not related to Billy Joel's drummer, Liberty DeVito. But is he related to Danny DeVito? He could be. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At number 17, a song we spoke of when we were talking about uh, Boogaloo, uh, El Watusi by uh, Ray Barreto. Yep, that is still hanging on on the charts. But don't worry, we're going to see more Boogaloo. This is going to be a continuing trend until about 1967. At number 47, If You Need Me by Solomon Burke, another song that we spoke of in a previous show. Great, great soul singer, one of the best. At number 66, The Chiffons with One Fine Day, a Goffin and King song. I love this song. Me too. One of the great girl group songs and just a great song, period. The song was originally intended for Little Eva and prepped by Goffin and King with King providing the guide vocal and, of course, Carol King playing that great piano riff, that propulsive riff, but they just couldn't get Goffin and King the right vocal arrangement on it, gave up and passed it on to the Tokens. 
who you may all remember for their hit, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. They not only had their own hits, but they also were producers and vocal arrangers. And so they had done the arrangement and production for the Chiffon's other fine hit, He's So Fine. And so they thought, okay, let's try this one. And so they ended up rearranging it and helping the Chiffon's with their vocals for this one. But they left in Carol King's great piano work on it. And the rest is history. Just a classic, classic song. When you think of the girl groups of the 60s, this is one of the best. And speaking of the chiffons, while I was looking through some things, I found a letter from George Harrison. Well, I I wish I owned this letter, but I don't. It sold for tens of thousands of pounds. But from April of 1963, he was asked for the songs that he liked, the songs that he was listening to. And the three that he mentions are He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Now, now there's no question. George was very familiar with the song. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Two Lovers by Mary Wells, which we've spoken of. And Say I Won't Be There by the Springfields, which we've also spoken of mm-hmm. over on the British side of the charts. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've come upon them many times. I just found that kind of interesting. He's like, oh, okay. So now there's no question. Yep. Yep. He knew it. (laughs) All right. At number 68, you know, we really don't get novelty records like this anymore. The children's novelty songs. And you can kind of see how the Beatles got to Yellow Submarine. And I remember singing this song in kindergarten, by the way. Oh, sure. It was a banger. (laughs) I wouldn't say that. On Top of Spaghetti by Tom Glazier and the Do-Re-Mi Children's Chorus. Hi, kids. Hi, Tom. Let's sing a little bit. On top of spaghetti. On top of spaghetti. All covered with cheese. All covered with cheese. I lost my poor meatball. I lost my poor meatball. When somebody sneezed. When somebody sneezed. It rolled off the table. just another version of on top of old smoky with jokey lyrics yep (laughs) yep it was a hit i can't imagine why but when uh, john was on jukebox jury he didn't rate this as a hit the interesting thing about john's comments is he doesn't comment on the jokey children's song nature of it he treats it straightforward and seriously what he says is oh i can't stand these all together now records do you think Paul was listening? Yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of one shouting and one answering, but not that. 
I prefer the recent Little Eva smoky locomotion folks, but not that. It's like an outing. (laughs) And then he ends with the marvelous line, a coach trip. There's some future for you, folks. Yeah, (laughs) that is so weird. You think they'll be rolling up for a mystery tour anytime soon? (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit strange. Was that a part of your childhood in the UK, Martin? Uh, I actually put in my notes, it's like singing a song on the coach on the way to a school outing. Wow. Okay. We we Mm. did those towards the later end of the school year. They'd bring a coach to the school and you go to somewhere like a zoo or somewhere like that and it's you get bored going there because it'd take you hours and hours to get there. And then you got there and you're too tired to actually do anything when you get there as kids as well. <laughs> the age six and under version of Magical Mystery Tour. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they still do, but I mean, at least when Kit and I were youngsters in you know kindergarten and first grade, when they'd have you go and sing in choir, this is absolutely one of the songs that they would have us do. Absolutely. But for John, it was a miss. Yep. You don't Can't say. imagine. Well, I was going to say you don't see songs like this make the charts anymore, but I guess, I don't know, maybe <laughs> Baby Shark. It's kind of that way, but not really. I yeah, mean, I don't know. We still have the Eurovision Song Contest over here, you know. You know, something like this, you can see where they would come up with, oh, we'll do Yellow Submarine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, we're going to do that, and we're going to do it a lot better than anybody's ever done it before. I'll take this great music of John's and I'll put some children's lyrics over the top. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all right. At number 72, one of the all-time greats, Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Classic, classic, classic. Have you heard the advertisement story about this? Tell us, Martin. Apparently, Johnny Cash was offered some money, I think it was in the 80s, by a company who wanted to use it in advertising for, um, shall we say, things to help you to go. Oh, my God. <laughs> bit on the nose there. You just well, a little bit, yeah. another part of the body, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I have to follow do that. You, do, you, do you have some validation <laughs> on that? I, I, that sounds like an old wise tale to me a little bit. It might be. No, I think I actually did hear that story and that he turned it down. Thank God. (laughs) Believe it or not, I think I did hear that somewhere. I can just hear Johnny saying, you for real. It's time for that classic picture of Johnny Cash on stage. Give him the double rods. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, yeah. a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring found by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire and I also thought that was brilliant to add the horns, the mariachi horns, which, I kid you not, he said he dreamed about that. That's how <laughs> he got the idea. 
Paul probably read that and thought, wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> uh, Anita Carter had just landed a contract with Mercury. Now, this is during all the folk craze of the early 60s. She said, they need one more song on the album. And I told them that we almost had Ring of Fire finished. We got it all together. And uh, we took it down and sung it live to Anita and the musicians, and bang, it was recorded right then. And it was so beautiful the way she did it. With uh, It was slow, and, and it just rolled with the folk guitar. And uh, Johnny, everybody heard it, loved it. And Johnny Cash told us on the road, he said, you know what, I dreamed that I, I heard Ring of Fire with Mexican trumpets, and it was my voice singing. And he said, I'm going to record that song if Anita's record don't hit. So a couple of months later, he called me and he said, all right, Kilgore, come on in. I've got those trumpets ready. So I walked in the studio and those trumpets started playing the Ring of Fire. Wow. Everybody knew it was an instant hit. Just like Roy Orbison. There's where Paul really got the influence from. Exactly. There you go. In a few years, we'll be talking about Keith Richards doing the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love the horns. And, of course, it was popularized, the mariachi horn sound, by Herb Alpert, you know, in The Lonely Bull. Uh, gentleman we've talked about before on this show. And I just think those trumpets just add so much to the song, which is great anyway. It's the world music thing. That's kind of coming as well. Absolutely. We've been getting a taste of that already, as I said, with you know, the boogaloo thing. And uh, June and I lived in Madison, June Carter, and we lived in Madison. So she said, look, when we're off the road, why don't we just get together every day and write songs. And I said, well, sure. And we started on a writing uh, one day, and I said, I'm stuck for an idea. Do you got any thoughts, June? She said, well, Kilgore, I've been looking through some old letters, and a friend of mine uh, just got a divorce, and he said, listen to this, love is like a burning ring of fire. You know, I can't stand it anymore, and I'll never fall in love again. She said, that's something in that title, don't you think? And I said, yeah, I really think we should work on that. The lyrics uh, co-written by his future wife, June Carter, and backing vocals by uh, the Carters, by the way, uh, the Carter family. So, uh, just a great song. And Johnny Cash would work with Paul much later, New Moon Over Jamaica, which is a song that I really like. Mm-hmm. Love that song. Didn't they do one of the Ram songs as well that's never come out, June and Johnny? Yeah, I believe so. Hmm. And then, I mean, Johnny did go and visit the Beatles. Was that in San Francisco? Yes, at the Cow Palace in 65. So there there was a mutual admiration society going on there. Well, and Johnny Cash was just so cool. I mean, you know, how he was a huge fan of Bob Dylan at a time when I think traditional country artists were still poo-pooing rock. And Johnny was open to all that stuff. Man in Black, he was cool. (laughs) All right, at number 73 was Shake a Hand by Jackie Wilson and Linda Hopkins, a great song and one that Paul would cover on Run, Devil, Run.
Little Richard did a cover of it in 1959. And apparently it was that version that Paul heard in Jukeboxes in Hamburg. He said later he never owned the record, and he said around the time of Run, Devil, Run, he said he never had the record, but he just remembered it and he loved it. And so he covered it, as you said, on uh, Run, Devil, Run, did a great job on it. And this is a very good version as well. Oh, I love Jackie Wilson. What a voice he had. I love it too. Yeah, let's call it a day. Don't forget to pray And shake a little hand once every day Number 90 was First Choral by Paul and Paula. We've spoken of them. Not one of my favorite songs. I debate the lyrics. I have a problem with the lyrics. Really? Trying to make an argument sound like a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of. Kind of like, hey, this is what happens. I thought I saw you with Jim. making that quarrel or an argument into that happier thing you're almost expecting the sesame street puppets to suddenly come in and join in (laughs) (laughs) okay i like that (laughs) all right at number 94 is the dog by rufus thomas At this point, he was a Stax artist, but he actually came out of Sam Phillips' Sun Records. He only recorded one song for Sun, and then he was one of the African-American artists that was released by Sam Phillips. 
when he oriented the label more toward white audiences and then signed Elvis. But thankfully, he ended up signing with another label called uh, Satellite, which then changed its name to Stax in 1960 and became a huge star on Stax and ended up recording a song that became Stax's first number one hit, which I highly recommend. Go see the concert film Watts Stax. If you haven't seen it, you've got to. I think he performs the dog in that. I haven't seen it in a while. Rufus Thomas was a hoot. He always performed in these sort of white go-go boots. They were kind of a cross between like white go-go boots and platforms. And he just was a performer. And uh, the audiences loved him. I mean, he just was a dynamic performer. And he would do a series of recordings with his 17-year-old daughter, Carla Thomas, who then ended up becoming a star in her own right on Stax. Great, great artist. Uh, great soul artist. What's with him and all of these dog songs? His record on Sun was one that Sam Phillips suggested called... Bearcat. Okay, Bearcat, you say that's not a dog song. It was written as an answer record to Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Not yet Elvis's Hound Dog, Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Oh, you you know, you you need to write a song in response to that. (laughs) He has a thing for animals. Yes, I know. He is a character, but a great performer. Just a lot of fun, so... Go track down Watt Stacks and check out his set. Lot of fun. later recorded Thomas's song Tiger Man shortly after he was signed to Sun. So Tiger, more animals. <laughs> more animals and it's Elvis and Sun Records. And all right, at number yep. 100, Count Basie's version of I Can't Stop Loving You. This would be a few years after the Ray Charles version. I really like this version. It's a straight orchestral version of the song. That arrangement by a very young Quincy Jones is stunning. Yes, it is. Oh, it's beautiful. This is a great example of one of the reasons I love Quincy, that he doesn't overdo it. He always does really tasteful arrangements. Very similar to George Martin in that way. Exactly. Very good point. And eventually Quincy would do a cracking arrangement for Ringo's first album. 
Yes. And of course, Count Basie would record two Beatles tribute albums, Basie's Beatles Bag and Basie on the Beatles. Some of the versions are better than some of the other versions. Yes. That, I will leave it at that. So yeah, it's a mixed bag. I agree. Make your own mind up. So we move on to the second week of June 1963. June the 8th, at number 71, a tune that was released on Cameo Parkway, another one of those classic songs, So Much In Love By The Times. As we stroll along together, holding hands, walking all alone, so in love are we two that we don't know what to do, so in love, in a world our own. I love this song. It's a classic. I love the arrangement. And... I believe John rated this as a miss on Jukebox Jury. John, (laughs) John, what's wrong with you? I mean, this is a beautiful song, just classic doo-wop, great arrangement. What can you say? I mean, it's it's almost a standard now. Absolutely. I've got something for Kit to look for now. There is Mm -hmm. a fantastic live a cappella rendition of this by Huey Lewis in the News. No way! Absolutely. Oh it's oh. amazing. It's oh. a really good version. Excellent. I will look that up. Him Definitely. and all the members of the news around a single mic doing it barbershop style. Oh, and they are so good at that. Mm. They really are. Oh, I'll check that out. Thanks, Marv. That's awesome. As we Number 88, Timey Kangaroo Downsport by Rolf Harris. So Rolf is getting some recognition here in the States at this point in time. And we should mention that Rolf Harris has some rather unsavory details about his later life. And, well, we won't go into them there. You can find them if you want to, but probably not a good guy. But Timey Kangaroo Downsport was highly recognized on both sides of the pond. Rolf Harris just passed away as we're recording this. Yeah, strange coincidence. Interestingly, some of this was inspired by Harry Belafonte's Calypso in the rhythm of it. Calypso was kind of hot in this period, but it was kind of amazing, I think, that it was such a big hit in America. I'm kind of surprised, but I guess it does have a bit of a novelty quality to it. Novelty songs were big in this period. On top of spaghetti. (laughs) This was first, of course, a a top 10 hit in the UK uh, in 1960 and was number one in Australia, which, you know, I mean, that's not a surprise, of course. But in 1963, he re-recorded it in the UK with George Martin producing. And this is the remake that reached number three in America. And at the end of the year, we will see several crossings of Rolf Harris and the Beatles. And 
there is a very famous version of this song where he talks about each of the four of them. Yes. Right. It's pretty amusing. All right. At number 90, Lonnie Mack with his cover of Memphis. It's instrumental. His guitar is not the Chuck Berry guitar, but it's a very nice, very good bit of guitar on this cover. And it's interesting learning about his background, that he was really uh, influential as kind of a blues rock guitarist. He's known for vetting the prototype for the lead guitar styles of blues rock and southern rock. And you can kind of hear it. It's definitely, particularly for 1963, has kind of a grittier sound to it. It's more aggressive. And it's kind of a shame that this song, uh, his cover of Memphis, is from his breakthrough LP, The Wham of That Memphis Man. And he was really on his way up. Shortly after this release, though, the British invasion hit. His popularity kind of faded after that. It was just sort of bad timing. So he never really reached the heights that he might have if uh, things had been different. To me, I just think this sounds out of its time. I mean, I just don't think it sounds like it's from 1963. You can draw a direct line from this to like the Allman Brothers. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, this is the song that you had mentioned, and we've all been waiting. Number 93, Spring in Manhattan by Tony Bennett, and I'm going to go first and say I like it. It is overproduced, but I like the song. I like the song very much. Dan Costa, I believe, arranging and conducting. Yes. Which has got a really prominent piano at the front, but I don't know whether me and Kit are going to be on different sides of the table here, but... I really like the little incidental bits that he's throwing into the arrangement because you find it a lot in Dan's arrangements where he'll throw counter melodies from different instruments throughout here and there and doing almost like call and response in the background behind the lead singer. And a lot of the time, it doesn't cloud the lead singer. And to me, I I quite like that, but I don't know how you feel about it on this kit. Well, first of all, I love the piano. The pianist is Ralph Sharon, an incredible British pianist. I saw him perform with Tony Bennett many times with the Ralph Sharon Trio. I picked it out right away, you know, when I first heard it, because you really listen to what he's doing in the background, little flourishes and, and all. I mean, he was just so talented. I just love his stuff. Tony Bennett, what a singer. I adore his voice. I don't know. And normally I like John Costa's arrangements. I just thought this was a little busy. The backing singers, for me, overwhelmed Tony's voice a little bit. I would have liked to have seen or heard this stripped down a bit more. I mean, I guess I liked Tony Bennett's later work where it was like with just a trio or, or just maybe fewer backing singers. I guess I would have liked that better. This is another example for me of being overarranged. And as I said, I love Don Costa. I was surprised mm. that it was a little heavy-handed. The song was great. So it has the bones of something that you would really like. Exactly. I'd like to hear it without the backing singers or with them less in there at least because the arrangement with the orchestration is already teetering on that busy as it is. 
and then you throw the singers over the top of that, and that might be the clincher, perhaps. Yeah, I'll have to see, because I bet he recorded this again or did it live or something. As you said, uh, yeah, the bones of something greater here, but I just don't like the arrangement. All right, at number 100, Just One Look by Doris Troy. Doris Troy did not get the attention that she deserved. Right on. Absolutely. She had a great voice, and this song is a, just a classic. There are other great versions of it. The Hollies would take it. That's one of the ones that, why these skinny British guys go and do that song? <laughs> they did kind of a fun version. They did kind of a fun version, although it's it's a distant third to the original or Linda Ronstadt's version. I mean, Linda Ronstadt's version is also brilliant, produced by Peter Asher, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm. And along with the trends that we have discussed, the B-side of the record was Bossa Nova Blues. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. And I should also point out, I found out the co-writer of the song, along with Doris, was Gregory Carroll, and he was part of a groundbreaking doo-wop group called the Orioles. They were considered one of the pioneers uh, the doo-wop format. They had a couple of hits, uh, It's Too Soon to Know and Crying in the Chapel. I taught uh, about them in one of my classes. Uh, <laughs> so I was pretty thrilled when I saw that. I'm like, oh my gosh, the Orioles. And Doris Troy was discovered by James Brown, turns wow, out. Okay. He saw her performing in a nightclub under her then stage name, Doris Payne, and introduced her to Atlantic Records. Thank goodness he did. I love her voice. Love the drumming on this song, too. Absolute classic. And obviously, George Harrison remembered this song a lot, too. There's a story about the first time that she was to encounter George. Quoting her, I was called to do a session for Billy Preston, and when I got to the studio, it was George Harrison producing Billy. So when I walked in, George gave me this great big smile, picked up his guitar and started playing Just One Look. I said, wow, you know my song. And he said, I know everything you ever did. We got along <laughs> real good. Obviously. And, and boy, her album, I mean, you know, obviously George recruited a, an all-star backing band for her. Unfortunately, it didn't do well. Although, you know, George had the right idea. You mm-hmm. know, he was trying to build this Apple house band, the Apple equivalent of what was it, Motown, or the equivalent of what Brian Wilson was trying to do with the Wrecking Crew. Right. But it just never happened. But you can see how it might have worked. Yeah, that's true. It's too bad because she should have been much bigger than, than she was. All right, we move on to the next week, June the 15th. At number 68 was Surf City by Jan and Dean, with a lot of help from their good friend Brian Wilson. Indeed, this was the first surf song to reach number one. Wrecking Crew backing them up, including Glenn Campbell and Hal Blaine and all the greats. And and as you said, Brian Wilson with the memorable line, two girls for every boy. That's what (laughs) I always remember. (laughs) It's a great song. I'm not going to try that falsetto. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't try it. (laughs) How about you, Marv? I'm happy as I am.
at number 85 was Dion's cover of the 50s classic from the Dell Vikings, Come Go With Me, a song which shall live forevermore in Beatles history. Yes, indeed. To this day, when I hear it, I hear down, down, down to the penitentiary. <laughs> version. I, I think he does a good job. It's a lot more doo-wop than the original. Yeah, it is. I like it. He's a great singer, has such a strong voice, and I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I think it's a good cover. At number 90, Jack the Ripper by Link Ray and his Rayman. Notable for us because it was released on Swan Records. That's right, and Link Ray's finally getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year as an early influencer. He deserves it. He was uh, one of the earliest to integrate uh, distortion and tremolo and uh, guitar. I like Rumble, you know, the one that he's most famous for, Better Than This. But it's still a good song, good drumming. The guitar is excellent, I mean, as it always is. Yeah, absolutely. And this has yeah, kind of a grungy feel to it. It's a little ahead of its time. Number 95, Rat Race by the Drifters. Tell me that this song, the end of this song, is not the Batman theme. (laughs) You know, we talk about Taxman, the Batman theme. This song is more like the end of Taxman than the Batman theme is. (laughs) Never thought about that. (laughs) But, okay. (laughs) Because it kind of ends with that whole da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, that's true. Rat Race. I'm gonna win It does sound a bit like that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's entirely possible because, you know, we, we still have the question of whether George actually knew the TV version of the Batman theme. He may well have been thinking of this song. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's true. I definitely think this is not one of the Drifters' better songs. I mean, they do it well, but it's, it's Lieber and Stoller. They worked with the Drifters quite a bit, but also Van McCoy. And yes, that is Van McCoy, the writer and performer of The Hustle from the 70s. That's the second time you've mentioned him. Yep. So he was quite prolific in the 60s. So yes, he wrote this too with Lieber and Stoller. So Van McCoy pops up again. 
at number 96 was the Shirelles with Don't Say Goodnight and Mean Goodbye. I like this song. It is well done. The Shirelles don't do anything halfway, although it is a little bit in their bag. crazy about this i mean i just don't think it's on a par with soldier boy or will you love me tomorrow well nothing is in the same class as will you still love me tomorrow yeah i just didn't feel was that memorable but i mean they did it well their harmonies their vocals they're the shirelles i mean they're just so good but the song itself just didn't do much for me but that's just me i like it a little more than you do it's not one of their all-time classics, but it's good enough. The week of June 22nd, at number 59, there goes my heart again. There's Fats Domino. Here we go with the past. We talked about past, present, and future. It's not one of my favorite Fats songs, but he still sounds great. The piano is tremendous. Of course. His piano is always tremendous. Nobody plays mm-hmm. like Fats. Or sings like him. Can't help but smile. Whenever you hear his stuff. It's another one that you can kind of hear the direct lineage of Lady Madonna in this. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. Baby, can I take you for a long, long ride? Just want to have you right by my side. Well, there goes my heart. Then we have two Ray Charles songs. At number 62, Without Love There Is Nothing, and at number 81, No One. Now, neither of these are the R&B Ray Charles. No one ever cared. No one ever shared all those dreams that I dreamed would come true. Well, interesting about No One, uh, that song was originally recorded by Connie Francis. It was the B-side to Where the Boys Are, but Ray had the bigger hit with it. I wasn't as crazy about that one. I thought, here I go again, it was overarranged. <laughs> I would agree with you. On both of these records, Ray kind of gets drowned out a He does. Bit. I did like Without Love There Is Nothing. I'll wake up. This morning, and I was filled with despair. All my dreams turned to ashes and gone. My God, he's Ray Charles. What a voice. Toward the end, he was overwhelmed by the horns and and all that. But up until then, I really liked it up until that point toward the end where I just thought, yeah, like, you know, tone it down. Let him sing. He's Ray (laughs) Charles, damn it. (laughs) 
Did you notice that no one is another one of those written by Doc? Yeah, oh, that's right. I forgot that. Boy, Doc Thomas, my God. I He's mean, he all over these charts. Yep. Yeah, he is. <laughs> all right. At number 82, get him by the exciters. Now, could they have just used the same backing track from Tell Him and sung <laughs> these words over them? Oh, but wait, you wouldn't have these lyrics. I have to read these. I just have to. Get them in a party. Get them in a car now. Get them with the lights down low. Get them with your perfume. Get them with your lipstick. And get them with the yah, yah, yo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what the hell is the yah, yah, yo? I smell a court case coming. <laughs> <laughs> same song <laughs> okay the lyrics are different but i mean the, you know they'd had the hat oh we'll just do it again yep they, there's very little they bothered to change up as i was listening to this you know when they were singing get him get him i was you know starting to say get him right now oh wait <laughs> <laughs> oh it's oh it's different okay <laughs> well uh, at least i'll tell us it's different I don't know if I will believe you, but sure, it's different. All right. <laughs> it's cute. <laughs> it, it doesn't make it a terrible song. I mean, no. it's just an inferior copy of a great song. Yeah, exactly. Well, we talked about it earlier, Formula. Tell them was such a great hit. Why mess with perfection? <laughs> but does someone tell me what Ya Ya Yo is? <laughs> if it's something dirty, I mean, what is it? <laughs> Uh, it probably temp lyrics that just made their way through to the end. Oh, I like that. Let, let's. I mean, they, uh, they clearly weren't really trying to do much of anything. No, the lipstick. I get that. <laughs> you are known for your lipstick. Exactly. I totally get that. She's the queen of lipstick. That's right. <laughs> Kit will take it away as we talk about number eighty-five. Fingertips Part 2 by C.B. Wonder. Why is it the B-side that charted? We've seen that a couple times as we've gone through these songs. It's always the B-side that seems to be the one that's on the charts first. Yeah, it's weird. It's that edit that, you know, was the one that hit. So this actually is not the first version of Fingertips. It started as a jazz instrumental that was recorded for his first studio album, uh, The Jazz Soul of Little Stevie. So this is the live version of the song, and it was recorded in 63 during a Motortown Review performance. And this was, of course, part of the tour that all the Motown artists went on. This was recorded at the Regal Theater in Chicago. Hey, second Chicago reference in this episode. Yay. Clap your hands just a little bit louder. Clap your hands just a little bit louder. Clap 
Stevie did a few stanzas of improvised lyrics, and it was written by Clarence Paul and Henry Cosby, who were like his mentors at Motown and really helped him develop as an artist. So the edit point that begins part two of Fingertips is, you know, of course, when he shouts, everybody say, yeah, and the call and response exchange from the audience. And so he plays his harmonica and is accompanied only by the audience clapping. Now, he seems to bring things to a conclusion. And on the night of the recording, and apparently he did this quite a bit because Apparently, Stevie was a bit of a rascal. (laughs) (laughs) No, never. (laughs) And so he wanted to make a name for himself on this tour. And so he would sometimes not really want to leave the stage. And so he was supposed to finish the song and leave. And the band would kind of play him off. And then the next artist would come on. Well, this particular night, the you know, MC was, and I think you can hear it on the recording, would say, you know, he'd, they'd say, let's give him a hand. But Stevie decided to just come back on <laughs> the stage. <laughs> uh, he wasn't done yet. And that's when you hear him saying, you know, goodbye, 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 goodbye. So meanwhile, the musicians were changing places in the back for the next act. Uh, the bass players had already changed over to prepare for the next act, who was Mary Wells. And so Stevie starts the impromptu encore. So the new bass player realizes that Stevie is continuing. So you hear on the record someone yelling, what key, what key? So that's him. That's uh, Joe Swift, the bass player, realizing (laughs) I've got to keep playing. And so at the end of the record, I think you hear the MC saying, okay, how about it for Stevie? And, you know, basically... Get off now. (laughs) (laughs) So they were recording that night, you know, the the performances, and they needed a single from Stevie. And so Barry Gordy heard this recording and said, hey, you know, listen to that audience. Because, you know, Stevie just obviously brought the house down. So they released it as a single and released a live album from this performance, recorded live uh, 12-Year-Old Genius. And the rest is history. Uh, This went to number one, but they did not expect that it would be that big a hit. I mean, Motown absolutely didn't. By the way, the drummer on the song is Marvin Gaye. And of course, Stevie would go on to work with Paul. I mean, Ebony and Ivory, he would also record with George Martin and Montserrat. You know, there's a lot of connections between Stevie and the Beatles. Exactly. And by the way, we know the single reached number one, but so did the album. And he was the youngest artist to ever accomplish that. Particularly notable moment in in music history here that this week uh, signifies the debut of this single. And I will take the opportunity to recommend that thing you do, the Tom Hanks film, just because the whole idea of these package tours is not something that we ever really got to understand. He represents that very well in that film. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, Motown did these package tours 
for many years, including in England. And they went over uh, pretty well. Well, I mean, it's not just Motown. It's everybody. I mean, Peter Gordon frequently talk about if you weren't the Beatles when you came to the States, you were going to be headlining or second on one of these package tours. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So thank you for letting me go on about Stevie's my guy. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. All right. At number 86, uh, another surf song, Wipeout by the Surfaris. Everybody knows this one. Yep. Another surf rock. The giggle is why everybody knows this one. By the way, that giggle is their manager, the band's manager, uh, Dale Smallen. That's his name. I always (laughs) wonder. Wipe out! Okay, I'll do that. Oh, there you go. All right, Marv, you've got to clip that. You apologize, although you have yet to apologize in this show. Well, I guess you just apologize to us for going on about Stevie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, at number 92, more from Mongo Santa Maria. Yeah, yeah. We just mentioned it because, well, it's more Boogaloo. It's more Boogaloo, and uh, you probably know this song, but probably not this recording. You may know it from two years later when Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames would cover it and they uh, would have a big hit with it in 65 you may remember mongo santa maria he had a previous hit with the cover of Herbie Hancock's uh, Watermelon Man, and that really helped kick off this boogaloo craze. So here we go again. But yeah, I didn't realize this, yeah, yeah, was the original version. I believe Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames were playing it the night that Paul and Linda met. Uh huh, you're right. Yep. That's so, a bag of nails, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Yep, exactly. So yep. Yep. there you go. More connections. Yep. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I, I, I still like that interview with Linda, wasn't it, where they met at the bag of nails and then. And then Linda says, and then we went away for a dirty weekend. The dirty weekend was in Los Angeles. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Where Paul uh, kicked out the, what what is uh, colloquially referred to as the black and white minstrel show because of uh, the two <laughs> young ladies he had hired because, well, Linda showed up. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was quite a weekend. Yeah. So, so it was doubly, maybe triply dirty for Paul. Yep. Mm. Uh-huh. Okay, and yep. moving on <laughs> to break that at number one hundred with Breakwater by Lawrence Welk. We're not going to mention it, but Kit put it on our list here, so I we have to kidding. say. I was kidding. Because <laughs> Lawrence Welk, I mean, you know, he comes out with those, as the kids say, bops. We move on to June the 29th at number seventy-seven, "The Tip of My Fingers" by Roy Clark. I've But that was as close as I came. My eyes 
This kind of sounds like he rewrote Tennessee Waltz to me. Well, actually, it's a cover of a song originally written and recorded by Bill Anderson, country singer. And it was recorded, I guess, by numerous other people. This was, I believe, Roy Clark's debut single, or at least his first chart single. Reached number 10 on the country charts, uh, number 45 on the pop charts. I didn't realize that Roy Clark sang. I always thought he... Just played, you know, well, not just played. He's an incredible, was an incredible guitarist. Yeah, he he has a really great voice. He really Uh, does. And as far as this song, this song would actually be one of the ones that would challenge She Loves You in Canada. As we mentioned in the first half of this show, She Loves You would break the Beatles in Canada as we got to late October, early November of 1963. And so... It took it a few months to cross the border, but this was one of the other ones that was on the Canadian charts right there at the same time. Wow. As I said, beautiful voice. Really impressed. I don't know how, you know, I missed that. Also, the original was produced by Owen Bradley. Owen Bradley was, you know, one of the architects of the Nashville sound, and this sounded very much like that to me, like that pop, Patsy Cline, and that sort of thing that we talked about, that country pop kind of sound. It's definitely in that vein to me. And here's a weird recommendation for Roy Clark. The first time I ever encountered Roy Clark, even before... I ever saw Hee Haw was on an old rerun of The Odd Couple when oh, I was a kid. Oh, classic. That wonderful thing. You can see it on YouTube. That I forget the song he did. But. incredible that by itself is worth looking up for sure and the looks on uh, jack klugman and tony randall's faces as he's playing i mean they're just entranced any kids that may be listening saying huh what (laughs) (laughs) what are you talking about Uh, the odd couple is available on streaming so yes check it out all right at number 83 green green by the new christy minstrels yeah, this is a continuation that we've been talking about. Folk pop, new Chrissy Minstrels, I mean, everybody knows them. You know there ain't no woman gonna settle me down I just gotta be traveling on a singing Green, green, it's green they say On the far side of the hill Green, green, I'm going away To where the grass is greener still I have to say, though, hearing Barry McGuire sing this with that gruff voice, I was half expecting him to go right into Eve of Destruction. <laughs> I was just waiting for it. And, and this has been covered many, many times. It's one of their known hits. But again, this is very typical of this earlier sort of folk pop sound. All right. We, we got a couple bangers here at the end. Sarcasm. Uh, it is not meant as sarcasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, unless you're John Lennon. John Lennon may have meant it as sarcasm. I, yes. I can't tell you. But at number 84, 
you're the devil in disguise, Elvis with the Jordanaires. Now, before we go on about this, while the Jordanaires' name has been retired, they came out of retirement to sing on Dolly Parton's new album. Oh, very cool. Oh, I Rockstar, which is, you know, granted, there are none of the original Jordanaires left. Oh, but, no. But when the last of the original Jordanaires passed away, they were like, we're going to retire the name. And so the, the son who got the inheritance of the name, he obeyed those wishes and he just retired it. Mm. So, you know, there would be no more Jordanaires performances. And, well... Dolly convinced them. These guys are still around, and these were ones who have been in the Jordanaires at various times. Can we really use the name just for this record? And they let her. I mean, it's Dolly Parton. Everybody will do anything for her. I mean, come on. So I well, can't Paul, wait for Paul this Paul and Ringo album. are playing together, so, you know. Yep, that's right. Oh, I can't wait for this album. But that's very cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I saw the list of names, and it's like, the Jordanaires? Who? Who? What? Huh? I knew that they hadn't done anything as any sort of collection with the name. And it's like, oh, okay. Now, this song, this was also one of the songs that John Lennon spoke of on Jukebox Jury. What did he say? He said, well, you know, I used to go mad on Elvis, like all the groups, but not now. I don't like this. Mm -hmm. And I hate songs with walk and talk in it. You know those lyrics, and he's right, you know, she walks like an angel, talks like an angel, you know, it's like, now it does get a little bit better as we get into the, (laughs) as we get into the the devil in disguise bit, but it's not a great song. So anyway, so, so John continues, I don't like that. And I don't like that double beat, doom cha, doom cha, that bit. It's awful. Poor old Elvis. And he also went on, I think he said something like Elvis was like Bing Crosby now or something. Mm. I, I think I read that somewhere else. Ouch. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting to see John saying this. I mean, because he was such a big Elvis fan. Yeah. He is very much one of the Elvis got out of the army and, and that was it. Yeah. Probably. I think the song's not that bad. It's it's okay. It's not one of my favorite Elvis songs because I admit I'm more of an early Elvis fan myself. I mean, I, I like his earlier stuff. And yeah, this one has never been a favorite of mine. I I might agree with John on this one. <laughs> I'm just it's catchy. And and Elvis, you know, Elvis his voice is fine. It's great, yeah. as mm-hmm. a matter of fact. But there's just not much meat on those bones. Yep. Exactly. And John is right. Walks and talks and the, the whole doom shot, doom shot thing. It's like, eh, all right. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, I'm sorry, folks, the, the Elvis fans out there are going to throw virtual tomatoes at me, but I just, I've just always found it a, a little corny for my taste. I mean, it's just, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, it's just not one of my favorite Elvis songs. Marv, what do you think? It's, 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 it, I don't mind it. If it comes on the radio, I'll listen to it. I won't turn it off. It's, it's all right. Yeah, I mean, it's not horrible. Yeah. I'm not yeah. saying that. Yeah. As much as we may say John was wrong on some of these other ones, I can see why he wasn't really into <laughs> On Top of Spaghetti or even the Click song. It's like, mm-hmm. okay. You know, maybe there were one or two he, he might have changed his mind on if he, if he weren't still worrying about old poor Bob Wooler. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that Elvis sounds like Bing on this, though. Yeah, I I disagree with that. Yeah, I think that's a little... 
Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's talking about in in tone or the way he's singing, but it's the style. It's a very sort of mellow sort of sound. Yeah, maybe that's it. That's true. But I mean, at least until he gets to to, he rocks a little bit with the you're the devil in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of works. And that's kind of the old Elvis. But that's it. And on either side of it, it says dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. That is what John is going. What is that? <laughs> but it's almost like the old Casio keyboard bossa nova. I kind of agree with John on this one. Not the Bing Crosby comment, but... But, I mean, even that, I can see what was in his head. While it's a little bit of an overstatement, if he'd gone and done the Elvis thing all the way through this, it might have saved the song. Yeah. That he only does this chorus like that. It's like, eh, all right. Mm, Yeah. It's it's another Elvis movie song. Mm. It's interesting that you pull up that, that section when it goes all, oh, the devil in this, that bit there where it goes all what's it do is because that's the bit with the more prominent guitar working and they actually brought in, so you've just got Scotty Moore, good old Scotty, and mm-hmm. he's just doing the rhythm on this, which is unusual because normally you'll have somebody else and then Scotty would do like the lead part on the guitar. But he's brought in as like back then a big lead guitar session. is called Grady Martin, who was well known for like getting called in for like special guitar parts. So that's why it's so prominent is because you've got Scotty and Grady who are both really top of the game guitarists in that song. And then the last two songs, very definitely the future. Yes, indeed. Yeah. At 86, Blown in the Wind, Peter, Paul and Mary. I mean, talk about a, a significant song. Now, as we had mentioned, Dylan had released his version the year before. It wasn't really intended to be a single. No, but Peter, Paul, and Mary's version turned out to be... A big hit. A big hit, indeed. This single sold 300,000 copies in its first week of release. It just became world famous because it's Peter, Paul, and Mary. Of course, it has a, quotes prettier sound than Bob Dylan's version. That's always going to be everybody's complaint about Dylan. Oh, you know, he writes great songs, but he can't sing. Yeah, exactly. But they keep the meaning, you know, the solemn meaning of the song. Probably to this day, this is the version that a lot of people remember. How many years must a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. You know, it's lovely. It's a beautiful rendition. And apparently it was first covered by the Chad Mitchell Trio, one of the other 
major folk artists of the time. But the record company delayed release of their album containing it because the song contained the word death. (laughs) So the trio lost out to Peter, Paul, and Mary because they were represented by the same manager that Bob Dylan had. Albert Grossman. Exactly. Better known to us as the man who bought the herbal jazz cigarettes to that infamous first meeting in a hotel room with the four Beatles, Brian Epstein and Bob Dylan. Ah, ding, ding, ding. So (laughs) another connection. (laughs) But definitely this would be the beginning of the direction that folk was going in. The interesting thing I've think about Peter, Paul, and Mary is they were almost assembled monkey style. Mm-hmm. You know, Grossman went out and said, I want a folk band and went for a woman and two guys who are going to fill these roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's true. You know, they're more pleasing to the ear, perhaps, than Dylan's voice. You know, his voice can be an acquired taste. He was following Woody Guthrie, and Woody Guthrie was never going to have a number one hit. Exactly. No. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, Well, here, their version of Blowing in the Wind, I mean, you know, became this massive hit because their vocals were just so beautiful and and they were more mainstream. And again, not saying that in any way to put them down, but those are the facts. All right, we close out June of 1963 at number 96, Del Shannon with his cover of For Me to You. so much time last month talking about how great for me to you is this is like a bad xerox to a certain extent it sounds a lot more like runaway than it does for me to you i I thought he was fairly you know faithful to the original obviously not as good it's not bad but the production on it is still well it's certainly not the beatles it's more in line with Runaway or Palisades Park, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, I'm trying to think of how to describe it, but it's not bad. I agree. I mean, you know, Dell is a great artist. Yeah. Uh, a good artist. I won't say great. He's mm-hmm. good. Yep. Uh, he, he's a good artist with some great songs. Yeah. But this does not fall into the great category as far as his rendition of it. Yeah. But yeah, as I said, it's a, a fairly faithful cover, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't have obviously the energy and all that the Beatles version has. I mean, it's there's just something about it that just lacks that urgency and all that the Beatles have. You well, know? I mean, not just that. We spent so much time last month talking about how it's the middle eight, which really makes the song work for yeah. the Beatles. And Del Shannon just kind of runs right over it. Yeah, that is true. The middle eight here doesn't quite work. That's true. But it was the first cover of a Beatles song, and it would get some traction. I mean, as we'll see next month, it will rise in the charts, and it did get VJ out there 
really spending whatever money they could afford to spend on trying to promote the thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, it was America's first taste, kind of, of the Beatles in a roundabout way. Anything to say about this, Martin? It's Del Shannon, like you said. Good artist, couple of great songs, and it's, it's all right, you know. If you do if you do a different version of someone's song, you know, yeah. I've heard worse cover versions. I kind of wonder when they were hanging out, when George Harrison was hanging out with him, how could you do that for me to you, Del? <laughs> yeah, George might have just been thinking, thank God it wasn't one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> As the story goes, he was running off stage on the night that Paul met Jane Asher. And he asked John Lennon, can I cover it? John said, yeah. Then he turned around. No, no, don't. But Del Shannon was gone. Oh, no. (laughs) And off he went and, and recorded the cover. Brian really wanted control of who was doing covers. John just kind of offhandedly said, yeah, sure, whatever. Oh, my gosh. Not good. (laughs) <laughs> well, maybe something else that was on John's mind that night when he was on Jukebox. You're like, oh my goodness, Dell's version of this song is gonna is coming out. Brian's gonna tan my hide over this one. That's right. Oh man, too funny. That is June of 1963. I will give the advantage to the Americans. The British charts, of course, are great because of George Martin and the Beatles songs and the British Invasion acts, but everything else that's in there, there are a couple of good songs, but I think the American charts are more interesting and have more of a glimpse at what contemporary music would look like. I think so, and some glimpses of the future. I think what's interesting about the British charts, though, is how so much of American rock and roll and and so many of the the architects almost of, of rock and roll are still there, still making an impact. I mean, even more than in America itself. It's nice to see that they were still, uh, still there and, and really impacting obviously British invasion groups. Well, you will find very soon that there will be more similarities between the two coming up. It still is interesting to me that the, here they were on Jukebox Jury, they were playing the song when those songs really weren't yet available in Britain. They were brand new records on that side of the pond when John was reviewing them. And I mean, I guess that's what Jukebox Jury was. It's like, here are the records that's coming out and here's what people think about them. Next week, you'll be able to go into your record stores and buy these records. True enough. So, all right, we move on to July of 1963 next month. No new Beatles single for yet another Mm -hmm. month, but, well, August is just the other side of that, and you all know what's coming up in August. We'll keep you in suspense. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't think there's much suspense. (laughs) Oh, come on, play along. (laughs) <laughs> well, I the, the Canadians know, you know, am I going to buy that Roy Clark record or am I going to buy this new one from those Beatles guys? <laughs> See, the Canadians knew where it was at, really. Oh, I know. <laughs> they really did. But the Swedes were actually already getting into the Beatles. They, they didn't quite book them yet, but the Beatles were on the charts in Sweden at the time. Mm-hmm. So, wow. The beginnings of the global Beatlemania we're just starting to sprout future as we say that's right all right very good we will be back next month and we will see are we going to have to do two sides again we might we just might talk to y'all soon see you next time take care 
There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the top rank records, remember when top rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is, is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost. 